Good afternoon and welcome to the Hansen Institute. My name is Sushka Petrovic and I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. I will be your host today during this webinar that will focus on the so-called essentiality checks for standard essential patents, that is the analysis to determine whether a given patent is essential to practice an industry standard. So let me explain what we are talking about. Uh, take the example of standards such as 5G and 6G. These standards are developed through a cooperative process. So companies and engineers from all over the world meet to discuss the technical challenges, present available solutions, and select the optimal technologies to develop a new standard that powers our connected devices. Unsurprisingly, those standards often rely on the most advanced technologies that are protected by patents. And that's why during the standardization process, participants are typically asked to clarify whether they own any patents that are or might become essential for the technologies that underpin uh, a standard. And, and if so, they are asked to clarify whether they're willing to license those those patents on specific terms to companies that implement the standard. Uh, that system of disclosing patent has worked well for many years, but some are now questioning whether we have a problem because the number of patents that are declared as essential or as potentially essential for a standard doesn't really match the number of patents that are actually essential for practicing a standard. And this has gone beyond just an academic debate. And some regulators outside of the United States are now asking whether there is a need to intervene and impose some form of essentiality checks for standard essential patents. So to understand a little bit more about this topic, we have with us today an excellent panel of speakers, the really people that have expertise on this topic. So we have with us Steve, Steve Ackerley, Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Interdigital, a company that is very familiar with the licensing of standard essential patents. We have Professor Katie Atkinson, Chair and Dean of the School of Electrical Engineering, Electronics, and Computer Science at the University of Liverpool. And we have Kit Mallison, founder of Wise Harbor. So welcome everyone. And thanks for being here with us today. So let me start immediately with a discussion. Mr. Ackerley, you you have a very extensive expertise, both patents, but also the industry perspective. So let me ask you, is there a problem? Is there a problem that more patents are declared essential or potentially essential to practice an industry standard that are in fact essential? And if there is a problem, what are the main concerns with this inaccuracy in the declarations? Thanks, Erska. Um, the short answer in, in my view is that th there is. Uh, there is a problem with uh, over-declaration. And I think if you simply consider the basic implications of the total number of declarations that we are seeing or have seen already for 5G, you can immediately see that those numbers alone cause uh, extremely difficult complications. Um, to, to just lay the, the, the framework a little bit, um, I, I looked at a study uh, that was in 2017, and so some of these numbers are going to be are not necessarily current, but it'll give you a, a, a sense of the scale. 
of the issue we're dealing with. In 2017, these are numbers for the top declarants for G cumulatively for uh, GMS, UMTS, and 4G. So 2G, 3G, and 4G um, by e either family count or individual asset count. Um, if you were to look at uh, Huawei, for instance, at that point in time, uh, again, and these are estimates rounded, uh, they, they had declared approximately 1,000 families to those three standards uh, and 6,000 individual assets. ZTE had uh, declared 550 approximately families, uh, totaling about 2,000 assets. The larger declarants at that point in time, Qualcomm, for instance, had declared 562 families, totaling 15,000 assets. Ericsson, 946 families, totaling 11,000 assets, and, and the list goes on. If you compare that now to the Etsy special report that came out in August of last year. Uh, so again, these, these numbers are going to be uh, increased, I suspect relatively significantly, Keith and, and Katie may have more, more current data, but just taking in turn, Huawei for 5G has declared 4,000, uh, over 4,500 families uh, as essential, uh, totaling over 26,000 individual assets. Uh, Qualcomm, approximately 4,000 families declared, totaling almost 40,000 assets. Uh, and, and you have new entrants. Vivo, uh, for instance, has declared 1.5 thousand uh, families. Uh, Oppo has declared 2,000 families. Xiaomi has declared, declared over 600 families, all leading to multiple thousands of, of individual uh, assets being declared. So what, what the raw numbers, even if you, even if you're not considering over declaration, there are at least two immediate implications that we see. Um, one is apropos of what we're talking about today, how do you conduct essentiality checks on that many assets, right? What used to perhaps in, in earlier instantiations of the standard perhaps you could have managed the essentiality checks. Um, now, given the proliferation of the declarations, uh, it, it seems to be an insurmountable task almost. Um, secondly, one of the big problems that we see as a, as a significant patent owner in the space is that Implementers tend to, in negotiations, take a very simple top-down. We we may hypothetically hear from somebody that we had a, a certain position owner owned a certain percentage of the what I call the declared stack, say in 3G. Our percentage again, I'm making up these numbers, but let's say that the interdigital percentage was was six percent of the 3G declared stack, and if that was then uh, down to four percent or less of the of the of the 4G declared stack. And then decreasing um, at, at, as it in fact is, our contributions may be increasing, right? That is the the, the raw number, and they and they have been. That is our declarations and essential uh, uh, contributions for three G or for four G were were greater than three G, for five G significantly greater than for four G, and yet 
we are confronted with this argument that because our relative uh, ownership in the declared stack is decreasing, that somehow that is an indicator that the value has decreased. That is the value of the interdigital contributions has decreased. And, 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 and we're not unique in that sense, right? That's an argument that will be used against uh, virtually any significant patent owner uh, who's seeking to, to uh, uh, consummate a license with, with an implementer. And so those are just two of the very, very significant problems that, are, that arise due to um, over-declaration at Etsy. And the, the policy at Etsy, and I know we'll get into this in more detail, doesn't really help because, uh, again, for those folks listening, the Etsy guide on IPRs states that members are recommended to to make IPR disclosures at the earliest possible time of IPRs, which are or are likely to become essential, right? So there is a lot of leeway. There is a lot of subjective analysis uh, and, and uh, that, that goes into making a determination of whether or not to declare. Uh, particular uh, uh, families or individual assets. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you for this explanation. Um, Professor Atkinson and Mr. Melanson, now just from a very broad perspective, there have been several methodologies that have been suggested as possible as, as a tool to determine the essentiality of a patent that has been declared as essentially essential. In very broad terms, what do you think are the main benefits of those the methodologies? What are the main challenges? So how should we go about in selecting the right methodologies to perform this type of analysis? Professor Atkinson, would you like to go first? Sure. So my interest in this topic comes from the perspective perspective of a computer scientist who is developing AI techniques and tools specifically for the legal domain. And the specific topic of patent essentiality review was brought to my attention by Norton Rose Fulbright and Qualcomm who were interested to get a survey of the state of the art in the development and challenges of applying artificial intelligence to the task of patent essentiality review. And like many legal tasks that are currently undertaken by humans, in order to perform the task of determining essentiality of a patent, it requires a detailed understanding of the technical context of the technologies that are being considered and also the associated law. And if we inspect the legal cases that have arisen in this domain, then they demonstrate that there are often intricate complexities that have to be weighed up when making these determinations in the legal cases. And um, because of this complexity that's uh, already been um, explained, then the question naturally arises as to whether there are new technologies and AI tools that could be put to use to assist with the process of determining uh, patent essentiality. Now, I work in the field of AI and law, and I've seen that AI is being applied successfully in a number of tasks in the legal domain, but frequently these are tasks that are well-scoped. AI generally performs well on repeatable tasks, but there are challenges to tackle to get AI techniques to match human-level performance when there are um, tasks that are highly complex, uh, where there's a level of interpretation and the subjectivity and information um, is changing over time. 
Uh, and as I said, we can see from these legal cases um, that, that these are, uh, are often um, complex debates um, that happen. So the challenge is to get the um, AI techniques to be able to perform at the same um, level that humans currently can on that task. Yeah, we certainly all like to have AI perform many of our tasks, but it, it's challenging. Uh, Mr. Melanson, what is your view? Well, I, th I think just stepping back a bit, it's worth asking the question, why are we needing to do these essentiality checks? Um, in terms of knowing whether there's a license required, there has to it has to be established that there are at least some or even one patent that is essential along you know with the assessments of infringement and validity so that's an important test but you may be able to achieve that by just assessing a very small number of patents um, and as typically occurs in litigation and as we know from litigation um it's it's involved and there can be a lot of challenges there can be appeals and ultimately you know, the final determination can only come through the courts and through the appeal process. And actually, that is the most robust checking that we we, we can have. Um, and and really, to, to be able to establish that, you may not need to check that many patents. But there is also, and almost implicitly, I find now nowadays, when we talk about um, essentiality checking, it goes along with the patent counting. And then the notion that there should be some sort of um, mechanism, some sort of apportionment proportional to the number of patents that are found, found uh, essential. Um, and, and so that's that's the sort of background, but it's 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 uh, difficult to do. I mean, clearly the benefit is that well it 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 provides an answer and the courts might like to have that a ready way of being able to allocate royalties. Although notable, um, one case, uh, Unwired Planet, um, which where the, the determination was primarily on the basis of comparable licenses, the, the notion of using the top-down kind of approach, the pro proportionate approach was really only as a cross-check and one of the things the judge, Judge Burst, really was very reluctant to do was to determine or to set out what that aggregate royalty should be. So even, even if you could do the proportioning, you still have to have some notion of what the aggregate would be. What he did in his cross-check is he just worked out what an implied aggregate royalty would be. And that's a really important uh, difference. So... Uh, I think there's a. It's very questionable even going down this 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 uh, approach of assuming that there's an aggregate and then it can be divided, and that there is some notion that it's only essentiality that you need to check, and that every patent is of equal value or proportionately are. So there, there's there we get into a lot of challenges and 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 more of them. So for example, there is essentiality checking that has has occurred for both regular patents and also standard essential patents in in Japan, this Hante E system for 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 checking um essential patents, which has not been used the last I heard. So where where they've actually done it, um it's not really been embraced. Now just a little but in terms of what happens when you do this kind of checking and counting, well, uh, so my background is actually as a cellular industry analyst. I've been doing it about 30 years, market force 
market forecasting, competitive analysis and such like. But I took an interest in SEPs and FRAND licensing and such like about 15 years ago. And, and part of that was looking at these essentiality checks that were coming in. And I got very um, surprised when I saw a study um, was published in 2011 where the results were so wildly different from everything I'd seen before. And there'd been some studies going in the late 2000s. And I thought that was remarkable. And I did a simple statistical comparison. And I saw that there was absolutely no correlation results between the two studies. So uh, one of the key concerns I have, and one of the challenges is that every study seems to come up with wildly different results. The overall essentiality rate, for example, for LTE is varied between 50% one study down to 12% uh, um, for LTE in another study more recently. We've had an overall essentiality rate as low as 8% for 5G. And then if you look at individual companies, their ratings vary enormously between these studies. Now, I don't do any essentiality checking myself, but what I have done is compared these studies and I come to the conclusion it's we cannot be confident that any of them are very reliable. Um, I thought it's interesting, um, uh, Dr. Atkinson is implicitly saying that there's a sort of goal of being able to have AI do it as well as humans. I'm, I'm actually concerned <laughs> uh, that actually humans are not very good at doing it, that certainly they're not very consistent um, and, and so, you know, even the gold standard that we, 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 that AI might be striving for is, is, is um, maybe um, not all that it could be. Anyway, so huge task to do all the checking, as, as um, uh, Mr. Ackerley has already said. And uh, we can get into the detail of this later. But, you know, you, you can either do full-blown assessments could it could cost you a billion dollars to check all the 5G um, patents um, if you did it thoroughly. Um, what many of these studies do are just cursory checks. Uh, and maybe that's no wonder, you know, that they don't come up with very consistent results. They spend only about 30 minutes per, per, per patent. Um, so the, the difficulties in either is extremes. And then there's the ability to do things like, you know, use samples and such like, and we can talk about that later. And I think that's probably enough for now. I'm sure there are many more things that I can talk about in the rest of the discussion. Yeah. Can I, I just jump in and, uh, and comment on, on that? So that's a really interesting point that, that you raised, Mr. Mallinson, about um, if, if you're having new tools um, and you want them to reach human level performance, if that human level performance is not in a good place already. And that applies um, not just in this specific topic, but in many areas um, of, of AI as well. So the human um, performance is generally seen as the gold standard because humans are doing these tasks already. So if we're going to have um, software assisting with this, we should expect it to be able to perform at the same level. But there are lots of arguments that are being made generally within the field of AI as to um, whether we should be um, holding the AI solutions to the same standards, whether we should be um, developing um, different criteria that they need um, to meet. Um, and indeed, um, if um, a machine is, is um, 
shown to say um, outperform humans in some tasks, not necessarily this one, um, you know, but, but some of the tasks, we at least need benchmarks to know what we consider to be good enough and what we consider not to be good enough, whether we're benchmarking it against um, human performance or not. And, I, and, and you lead me to, to say one thing, and, and it's uh, also in relation to one, one thing that Keith said. Keith, you, you mentioned that the litigation reviews that, that occur, right, through a trial court, um, through appeals, are the most robust um, reviews that, that, that we have. Um, I don't disagree with that. Uh, in, in fact, I, I, I would agree pretty strongly with that. But as, as we're having this discussion, it's occurring to me that part of that is because that's what that's what we are comfortable with, right? That's what I'm very comfortable with, right? I've spent 30 years doing patent litigation. Um, I, I have great faith in the in the U.S. jury system that decides some of these issues. Um, I have uh, I've, I've had wonderful experiences in, in European courts as well, where you know judges are, are making these decisions. Um, part of that comfort comes from the the ability to appeal, right, and point out obvious errors um, that 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 either a jury may have uh, uh, committed or or judges may have committed. Um, but per perhaps some of this is about getting more and more comfortable with other types of reviews, um, and I think that's a big that's an open question for me when we talk about AI. Or when we talk about some of the suggested types of reviews that are are now being proposed in the by European regulators, may I respond to that? Of course. Well, I'm asking. I'm answering, but it's really Erska. Erska. So I'm asking Erska if I may. I'm not sure I use the word robust. I might have done. What I what I do feel is though it the court is definitive. It's it's actually interesting to look at some of the court decisions. Um, including Unwired Planet, and there was another one as well, where they say something along the lines, well, um, you know, uh, actually, essentiality can be rather subjective, and it's a matter of opinion, ultimately, where reasonable minds can differ. So it's 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 not like looking at um, the colour of a or white, where we can all agree on that. There's no controversy, right? We can, we as long as we've got decent eyesight and there's this light, we will agree. But here we have something that's much more squishy, uh, and so ultimately we do need to have some kind of gold standard, and the courts can provide it. And clearly, they can only do it on a very limited basis. But that's it. And ultimately, it's you know you can think that. The courts still get it wrong, but ultimately that becomes the gold standard. And we have to have something um, uh, to do that. Now, if we're trying to say, well, actually, we could have other techniques that are better, then we've got to get into a whole kind of debate <laughs> as to what really better means and who, 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 you know, who has the sort of power of God to, 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 to say what is the better solution. Yeah, it certainly becomes a very interesting discussion. But uh, Mr. Ackerley, let me ask one question. Uh, well, it seems that there is a general agreement. Something needs to be done with this inaccuracy in the declaration. But my understanding is that some inaccuracy in the declaration about the patents that are potentially essential to a standard is inevitable, even if companies act in good faith. In fact, now we are talking with the team in court. Uh, we don't know whether they reach the right conclusion. Is, the, is my understanding correct? Could you explain a little bit how the process, the declaration works? 
Sure. Um, yeah, you're absolutely correct. And, and, and I'll step back. I, I mentioned the, the Etsy guideline on, 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 uh, uh, disclosures. Um, you'll note as, as I said before, that it, it, it requires, uh, disclosure of IPR intellectual property rights, which are, or are likely to become essential. So by, I would say by definition, there are judgment calls made that need to be made by companies to fulfill that obligation, right? To say, we 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 think this might become essential to the standard as the standards are being developed, as certain releases at, at 3GPP are being developed. And some of those may fall away during the technical discussions, right? Some certain things may not be adopted into a standard. And so I, th I think there's you will always have some sense of some amount of over declaration based upon the, the Etsy policy itself. And, and, and my point earlier that I'll, I'll reiterate is, is that that subjectivity really makes it difficult to determine who is in fact over declaring in a bad faith way, as opposed to parties acting in good faith to meet their obligations under the Etsy policy. Um, I, I, I would, and, and, and again, I, I should have said at the very beginning, these are, these views are mine alone, not the, not those of interdigital. Um, I, I think when you look at the numbers that were involved in declarations in, we don't have to go all the way back to 2G, uh, although 3G was, in some ways, the fractured at best standard really 4G is where you have the, I think, a true convergence of the technologies into a, a, a cohesive standard globally. The, but if you look at the 3G numbers, then compared to the 4G numbers, then compared to the 5G numbers, you're you're seeing an increase that is, um, it, it it makes you wonder what's going to happen with 6G in terms of the numbers, and I. My view is that you can't look at those numbers and believe that all of those declarants are acting in good faith. Um, there, 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 there does seem to be uh, a, a rush to declare. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean timing-wise, but uh, but to take advantage of the numbers game that that uh, that Keith was talking about. Uh, and so while there's you know these these are the difficulties we're talking about right now um certainly the etsy policy again by definition will lead to some over declaration I, I, well over declaration it, it will lead to declaring some assets or families that might not end up being essential i think over declaration i i i, I don't want to use it interchangeably because over declaration to me suggests a bad faith um approach to 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 using the system uh and so so i'll end there um uh and and i'm interested to to hear what the others have to yeah. say and makes sense i mean on one hand you have etsy policy that might uh, require early disclosure so it, it, there is inherently some inaccuracy in making um the declaration, but at the same time, if courts could keep to just count the number of patents and not look at their value, that also creates an incentive for over-declaration, as you call it. I have heard the numbers of patents that have been declared essential, and 
there seems to be a general agreement that it would not be feasible to check the essentiality of every single patent that has been declared as essential. Mr. Mallison, would you agree with this proposition? Is determining the essentiality of a patent really such a resource-intensive process? Yes, I, I think checking them all now, for certainly for standards such as 5G and 6G, it's it's an insurmountable task, certainly to do it all properly and thoroughly. But but even even with with cursory checks, then then it becomes um, a, a massive task. And then if you are doing very cursory checks, then you have other major problems that uh, that occur through doing that. Yeah. And in response to that, some people have suggested some shortcuts, right, for, for essentiality determination. So one of the proposed solutions is to limit the number of patents that should go through the essentiality analysis. And more specifically, one suggestion is to rely on sampling. So just look at the sample of patents that have been declared as potentially essential. And I know, Mr. Mallison, that you have been writing on this topic. There is a paper you have published that is available on the 4IP Council website. This is a think tank from Europe. So could you explain a little bit what were your findings in this paper? Yes, okay. Let me just explain one of the one of the shortcomings in trying to 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 do all the um, to check them all because you can't do them all thoroughly you do them with a with a cursory check uh, the inaccuracies there uh, are substantial and the problem that occurs when you do that is that there is a, a statistical bias that occurs that tends to inflate the uh, the essentiality rate that is found so and the lower the true essentiality rate the more that bias comes in so it's very important to be trying to assess patents accurately to check them accurately and so the feeling is then well if we could just take a sample of patents a relatively small number of patents and do that very accurately then we would overcome some of these kind of difficulties. So, and and to some extent that is correct. Um, the challenge is that um, the lower the true essentiality rate, you have a different problem that comes in, and that is the 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 variability, the 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 error, the standard error that comes through sampling, becomes a very substantial proportion of the. Uh, the the found essentiality ratio. So this is all in the Ken context of trying to do trying to do something like a top down analysis. So there is a trade off, and it's an empirical assessment really as to what the right balance is, is how much effort you put in, and how accurate you can be. And that's actually actually very difficult to even measure how accurate you can be. But you could use a sample to do that. But what I have found is um, where you have um, the overall essentiality rates, if they're down at 20%, 15%, 10%, then you actually need to have quite substantial samples. Um, they could typically run into thousands of patents to be able to get something that I would regard as being an acceptable margin of error. Now, there is no gold standard for what the margin of error should be, but I, in my paper, I suggested at a 95% confidence interval, that you should you should be within 
plus or minus 15% of the found essentiality rate. No, nobody has told me that that is a bad number or a good number, but at that kind of level, you still would need to be checking at fair, very accurately, actually, um, um, up to thousands of patents or around thousands of patents. And if I understand correctly, you mentioned the bias. So the bias is in favor of those companies that over-declare, so they're better off. And well, absolutely. So if, if you just look at declared essential patents, clearly anybody who's trying to play game the system and clear you if you're going to do top-down analysis you're creating an incentive for people to come up with high numbers so you know you get you it's 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 a product of the system that's being pursued so it's 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 almost inevitable um now so the notion is yeah well if we check essentiality then we can kind of remove that problem what my research says is that it actually doesn't fix the problem you're trying to mitigate it, but there still tends to be a biasing upwards where the essentiality ratio or rate is below 50 percent. You have what I call a systemic bias, because what tends to happen is false positives tend to exceed false negatives. And the lower the true essentiality ratio, the more that kind of inflation effect occurs. So there's still the incentive to over declare, as we call it. Um, and and. It's a function of how low the essentiality ratio is and also how inaccurate the assessors are. So if you do it in depth with claim charts and, and, and you do it thoroughly, in theory, or would, one would hope that it would be much more accurate. And I think there is there is some evidence supporting that, but it's, it's actually not very well empirically um, um, tested or measured. I mean, but talking about measurement, I mean, we're trying to create a measurement system here. Um, and uh, you know, you, you for for a good measurement system, it needs to be reproducible. It needs to be fairly transparent in what's going on, and um, it's difficult to do because it's it, because ultimately, I mean, you you you've got to select your patent landscape, and then you that even that's tricky enough because the the different studies vary on that. But then the next thing you've got to do the checking, which actually has this subjective assessment. Um, whether it's done by a human or whether it's done and by an AI algorithm, um, it's 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 there is that kind of difficult subjective step. At least when humans are doing it, you can actually scrutinize, and you you know in a court of law you can try and get figure out what the reasoning was for making a decision. One of my concerns about AI is it my feeling is it can be a bit of a black box. It's what the computer says. I'm a little bit concerned about yeah. that. You mentioned AI, Professor Atkinson, you have written about this topic. You have examined the role that AI can play in this essentiality evaluations. Can you briefly summarize what were the main takeaways of your research? So I did a deep dive review of the topic of patent essentiality review with my colleague, Professor Danushka Balegala, and we wrote a paper on this review. We studied the details of the manual task of patent essentiality review, and then we surveyed the state of the art in developments of AI for the task. And the key conclusions from our survey were, so first of all, the context that I mentioned already in that we can see AI is increasingly being used to successfully assist with the automation um, of legal tasks, but how successful the AI is 
it very much depends upon the complexity of that task and whether, whether you can capture it adequately within the AI techniques. So we've got precision and technical performance, which are key criteria that need to be met. That goes back to the conversation from earlier on about how do you know what the gold standard is? Well, me as a computer scientist, it's what the lawyers say. I, I take what they say to be um, the gold standard and see if we can build that into our AI systems. But equally important, and this touches on the point that Mr. Mallinson has, has just made, is end user acceptance. And this black box issue that is understandably a concern with new AI techniques is something that has to be um, addressed. So you don't want a piece of software um, just giving an answer and no explainability of the reasoning of how it came up with that conclusion. That's my own specialist area of research is explainable um, AI. So if we're going to get these tools to be used um, in the real world, we must have confidence in them that they can explain the reasoning that, that is being um, encoded and, and being delivered to the human end users. And it's a trust issue as well. Otherwise, people just won't trust them. So um, on that, um, if we look at some of the techniques that um, ha have been used to try and help with the um, assistance and automation of this task, if, if we represent essentiality as just a single numeric score, then that can be problematic because it can conflate multiple aspects into a single value, and that's not giving you that nice explainability um, that you need. Additionally, we know that law evolves um, over time as well. So essentiality scores need to account for terminology that evolves over time. And there's that tricky issue of subjective determinations that are a feature in essentiality reviews. And that obviously poses um, a challenge for capturing that subjectivity in AI tools. There are techniques starting to be developed to try to handle um, subjectivity, but it's a really um, tricky one. Um, another big problem as well is that there's a lack of high quality um, training sets currently for developing machine learning approaches to patent essentiality review. So machine learning techniques aren't the only techniques um, within AI, um, but they are ones that are being heavily used because of their success in other areas. And we all know that you must have high quality training data. And if there's a paucity of um, um, training sets, um, then you're not going to get um, very useful conclusions coming out of your models that have, have been trained on, on sparse data. And um, in order to be robust and effective, any automated solutions for patent essentiality review need to have that precision that captures crucial contextual information. And it's that contextual information as well that can then help with providing the explainability that, that we see as essential to accompany uh, any numerical scores that are given uh, as the conclusions from such tools that are aimed at this task. Thank you, this was a very helpful overview. And let me ask just another question. In your paper, you do talk, you, you mentioned even now, but in your paper, you go really in details about the language, right? Uh, semantic similarity. I understand that some companies are offering AI-assisted tools to determine essentiality checks that are based on semantic similarity. And could you explain a little bit more in details what did you find in your research about this, these tools that rely on semantic similarity? 
Yes, so in a wide variety of settings in AI, in AI, distinctions can be made between what we call syntactic matching and semantic matching. And syntactic matching is where you've got two words or two phrases uh, in different documents and they can be matched and it's quite easy to um, apply search techniques on those to retrieve those. Semantic matching is where two words or phrases can be shown to have the same meaning, but different specific words are used to express that meaning. And this distinction is relevant for patent essentiality checking, since a technical term that's used in a standard to refer to an innovation for a particular patent may differ to technical terms that are used in subsequent patents, and those alternative technical terms might have been introduced for um, differentiation purposes. So when you're searching across a patent and a given standard, it might not identify a match between the different terms used across those two different sources. And that's the real challenge that is um, present uh, in, in many applications today. There's a really, to, to, if I may, there's a, you, you raise a very simple and something that you're, the, the, the AI technology may very well be able to handle this, but to, to give an example, right? Um, it, it's, it's the issue of basically claim construction um, that we deal with in litigation all the, all the time, right? Where the words of, a, of a, a particular claim we say mean, you know, something with in relation to the specification but if you if you look at the in cellular technology the think about a handset right the, your mobile phone some claims are going to refer to handsets right some claims are going to refer to ues you know user equipment very common usage in patent in, in wireless patent uh in wireless patents but yet another one's a little little bit older but it's still used is wtru wireless transmit receive unit they all mean handset Right, they all mean mobile phone, um, but it's, again, that's a very simple example. I'm sure the AI tools could, can account for something that simple. But that, if you think about that, build that that that's a that's the simplest example um, that you have to account for, or or one of many, and and they get far more complicated after that. I think. Yeah, definitely. And Mr. I let me ask you something. Now, we see that there is a problem with over-declaration, but on the other hand, we see also that there are some challenges in the identifying the right technique to, the, to determine whether a patent is actually essential to practice a standard. So what are the practical implications of this? What if we start using a technique that gets things wrong? What, what, what will be the outcome then? Well... You know, as 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 we were, we've been talking, and as I was preparing for this, because I, I know that one of the um, one of the questions ultimately is, you know, what can we do? Um, and I, I started to think about objective techniques, and and that would, you know, from my perspective, would be a machine, right? Um, there, there. I think the difficulty lies in getting any significant buy-in across major declarants of of any given essentiality check. Um, 
because ultimately, if you if you did your level best to create something that was entirely fair, objective, what have you, some companies are going to score well. They're going to embrace that technique, arguably. Um, by definition, some companies are not going to score well, right? And 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 so what you're going to have is a real. Um, it, it's going to be very difficult to get full buy-in um, in in order to to move some of these things forward. Now, having said that, I don't think that uh, Dr. Atkinson should stop. Um, I, I do think that there is a place for more automated objective checking. Uh, um, I, I haven't quite figured out where that where that lies right now. Um, but uh, when we when we talk about uh, potential solutions, um, I, I I I do have one idea, but I'll I'll, I'll reserve that until uh, others weigh in on this issue. Do we have any other comments from others? Like, what if we get the things wrong? What are the challenges? Um, let me say something i mean inevitably i think things are going to be done incorrectly i mean we've been using these um essentiality studies and pattern counting actually for a decade or so uh, and and relatively cheap ones you know because they're cursory assessments and there's a bunch of different studies and um in nego licensing negotiations then the part you know the the, the parties can cherry pick the, the study that flatters them, maybe one that they, they sponsored. Um, that's another kind of bias that I found um, that it that appears to be there. It's unsurprising that uh, if you figure out who's sponsoring a study, that the uh, the sponsoring study tends to come out quite well. That's a really straightforward thing. Then maybe you can eliminate that with um, um, by doing things in a blinder kind of way. The, the kind of bias I talked about earlier with the systemic, it would it, it occurs e even if you were completely a, a impartial and you had no idea whose patents you were doing. It's just a function of the fact that those that declare more patents tend to end up having a, an inflated uh, essentiality score. Um, so we have these studies. Um, and I think market forces play out in, you know, in, in a in the private commercial world. Um, bad studies which should get rejected. I think it's fine. I and mean, there's a patent pool that's using AI, um, um, Allium, and I think uh, Dr. Atkinson is, is, would highlight some of the limitations in their, their, their technique. But um, in, in the commercial world, there are kind of nobody is forced to join a patent pool. So there is, there is, there is some sort of autonomy. The thing that I'm most concerned about is um, the example of what the European Commission is is potentially going to do, where they're going to institutionalize some kind of a system that is going to be imposed. Uh, that's where I think the, the, the greatest danger is. Um, otherwise, um, like I say, with market forces, bad solutions should um, kind of be weeded out and should be superseded by better solutions. That, that's overall how I, I, I feel. Uh, there is a, there's a a big challenge here in trying to, if you're going to allocate royalties in anything like a top-down approach, there is a big challenge in trying to figure out what the relative values are. And um, 
and, and I think through competition and different approaches, then we, we will be making progress with manual techniques, with um, automated techniques and such like. And there's obviously the economic dimension of what is what is realistic in terms of what can be afforded. And this leads me to my last question, which is, do you have any recommendations for policymakers that are looking at this topic? What is the best way for them to proceed? Any thoughts? I know it's a million dollar. I've got a quick one that I just put in as my kind of final remark. I mean, clearly, this essentiality checking, I said it could cost a billion dollars. In my paper, I think I made an estimate of half a, half a billion. So enormous money, amount of money. That's a lot of work for a lot of PhDs. Uh, so it's good kind of full-time work, a lot of mate work there. Um, I wonder, maybe we should think these people might be better deployed innovating developments of new technologies rather than really <laughs> second-guessing and checking what other people have done. Any other comments? Yes, so I, I can come in with some um, summary thoughts. So obviously, again, from the um, technology perspective, if we're going to be developing tools to assist with patent essentiality, then I think there are a number of um, requirements for, for getting this right. So first of all, you've got to have close collaboration between the legal experts on the topic and the AI developers to make sure that all that technical, legal and contextual information gets captured um, as needed in your AI models. You could put PhD student um, on that if you wanted to invest some funding there. And I think evaluation activities are really important going back to this discussion about data sets and about benchmarking. We need to be able to demonstrate that the performance of any of these automated tools meets a required level. We need to state what that required level is and be able to demonstrate that testing has been done and it either meets or doesn't meet that required level. And then finally, that point again that we mentioned earlier about ensuring that end user needs are met in terms of the explainability of the tools, such that any recommendations that are made and any conclusions that are drawn are fully explainable so um, that we can have trust in the robustness of the reasoning um, that is being conducted um, in these tools, which will hopefully um, help us to become um, more efficient in, in handling, handling these checks. Mr. Ackerley? I, I, think, um, I, I think both Keith and Dr. Atkinson make very good points. Um, particularly about market forces and continuing to hone these studies and techniques. I, I, I think you've seen over the last, whether it's 10 years or more, um, various studies that have come out. Some have survived and been uh, used repeatedly in litigation and in other environments. Some have not. Um, it's 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 in some ways that as long as these things are evolving, then we're going to be moving, I think, closer to something that's viable. Um, an example came to mind in the in the legal profession of of uh, to to maybe put a fine, but I don't know if it's a finer spin. There's uh, 
I don't know if in the overseas you you know of super lawyers in in the, in the U.S. There's a publication that comes out in, in various jurisdictions, and you can be named a super lawyer or not. And then on the other, and and people will claim their spot on that list if they're included, but most folks don't really put a lot of credence into that list. Whereas you can have others that are like chambers ratings and 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 other studies that rate rankings that that are more robust or you know th that people have more confidence in. there's a reason for that um and it's it's a substantive reason and i think that's that same thing applies to patent studies so some are are on their face not terribly reliable some are uh tend to be regarded as more reliable and i think the ai and in inclusion of ai techniques in this could be very helpful the 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 one idea that has almost a negative idea, which is, I, I, and I don't know how easy this is, but it, it seems to me that there, it it might be helpful at some point to do a a check for what what is plainly, almost demonstrably and inarguably not essential, right? To see if there is a pattern among declarants of you know of this over declaring that we're talking about, right? It's there there are going to be there's going to be a lot of gray. In the middle, there's going to be a lot. You could determine whether it's as low as eight percent or whether it's as high as twenty percent of actual essential. The, those things you could almost discard in favor of looking at this outlier on the other. These outliers on the other side, right? Which are simply not essential because they lack a, a critical element or more, um, uh, or or include elements that aren't part of the standard. Um, it's just it, it it might be a smaller task uh and then could then be used to uh disincentivize in some way uh the over declaration that we're talking about that's a very interesting suggestion so instead of focusing on determining essentiality let's focus on determining which patterns are obviously non-essential which is an easier and less resource intensive task well it's it may yeah. be. I don't know that it is, but <laughs> Katie, Katie could tell us. <laughs> well, with that, we have come to the end of our event. I would like to thank our panelists for this interesting discussion. I have really enjoyed it and I have certainly learned a lot and I'm sure so has our audience. So thank you everyone for joining us and I hope I will see you soon at the Hudson Institute. <laughs>